Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going get to get to that in just a moment. We're getting ready uh, this week for Thanksgiving, and I want to be the very first to wish you a happy Thanksgiving, okay? Even though it's not Thanksgiving yet, I want to be the first to, to wish you that. We're getting ready to enter the busiest season of the entire year. But before we really kick off the Christmas season, we have to endure Black Friday and then Cyber Monday. And I don't know what the Tuesday after that is. But this week is Thanksgiving. And so before we really get into the Christmas where we get so busy shopping, baking, cantatas, school programs and all that, we have one special day to look forward to where it's all about family and food and football, right? Thanksgiving. And that's the one day a year we're supposed to be thankful or, or maybe extra thankful. Hopefully, if you're not thankful during the rest of the year, that's one day of the year you can be thankful anyway. Of course, everybody tells us we need to be thankful all year long, which I agree. And I do want to tell you that I have preached many Thanksgiving messages, and I think I've spun Thanksgiving just about every way you can spin it. And if you've been in church in any length of time, you've probably heard many Thanksgiving messages, and so you're probably thinking, well, what's he going to say new today? Well, I want to tell you, I'm going to take Thanksgiving a different direction. Thanksgiving shouldn't be about being thankful or grateful or making a difference just one day of the year. But I want to talk today about living a significant life. Living a significant life in which you are significant not just one day of the year, but through the whole lifetime. Tom Heyman has calculated that the average American spends three years in business meetings. You realize we spend that much time in meetings? 13 years watching TV. We spend over $300,000 in our lifetime on food make 1,811 trips to McDonald's. We spend over 7,000 in vending machines. And and each of us eat 35,138 cookies, some more, some less, and 1,483 pounds of candy. Each average American will catch 304 coals and will be involved in six motor vehicle accidents, and will be hospitalized if you're a man 12, eight times, if you're a woman 12 times. And we're going to spend 24 years of our life sleeping. Now, does that sound like a significant life? Does it? Does that how we want to be remembered for? That we ate a lot of cookies and candy, and we went to a lot of meetings and watched a lot of TV and slept a lot? Wouldn't you like to be able to say at the end of your life, I lived a significant life and my life mattered? I want to give you three suggestions that I think that uh, will help guarantee that. And it's found in 1 Peter chapter 5. If you'll uh, begin reading with me in verse 1. And I want to tell you, this passage was specifically written for the elders. Now, you may be thinking, well, I'm not an elder. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. But I believe there are principles in this passage that can apply to all of us 
about living a significant life regardless of your status of an elder or not. Peter writes in verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Let me give you three suggestions that I think will help us guarantee that we live a significant life. Number one is start serving. You want to live a significant life, start serving. Jesus modeled servanthood. In fact, as you look his life, he was the model servant. Now, can you imagine the Savior of this universe getting down on his hands and knees and washing people's feet? That was the job of a servant, not the job of the Savior of the universe. But he modeled servanthood, and he wants us to serve. So if we take the focus off of ourselves and we start focusing on others and what we can give rather than what we can get, then we're going to live a significant life. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 11, if you want to be the greatest, be a servant. That's pretty simple, isn't it? If I want to be the greatest, I have to first be a servant. Now, service has become kind of a dirty word. If someone asks you to serve, you don't want to serve, do you? Hey, would you like to serve on this committee? Would you like to be on, serve on this board? Uh, let me check my schedule and my calendar and let me get back to you. We don't want to serve, do we? If you ask any of the, the staff at Oakwood the, what the hardest job and the most discouraging job of any of our staff people, it is asking people to serve, asking people to volunteer. And sometimes they get so discouraged when people just flat turn them down and they're just like, nobody wants to help. If you want to live a significant life, we have to learn this principle of serving. Everybody's busy. In fact, we're too busy. We don't have time for relationships. We don't have time sometimes for friendships. We don't have time to serve, do we? But I believe the greatest significance that any person can have on this earth is influencing others. So if you want to live a significant life, you've got to learn to be a servant. Moms and dads, you want to be a great mom or dad? You've got to be a servant to your kids. Bosses, managers, you want to be a great boss? Be a servant. Teenagers, you want to have an impact on this world? Be a servant. You want to be a great Christian? Be a servant. We have to learn, as what he says in verse 2, 
to choose desire over duty because he said, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to. Now, there are four words that will never change the world. Do I have to do it? Do I have to? I'll do it if I have to. That attitude will never change the world. And you will never live a significant life with that type of an attitude. Can you imagine when Columbus was talking to the Queen of Spain who just told him, you know, I want you to get in your ship and I want you to sail across the ocean and I want you to go discover a a new land, a new country. And him saying, do I have to? I guess I'll do it if nobody else will. What about Neil Armstrong when he's getting ready to step out on the moon and he radios back to mission control? Do I have to do this? Well, I'll do it if nobody else will. Well, you're the only one. Yeah, you kind of got to. Or David when he got ready to go fight Goliath. Nobody else wanted to fight him. Well, I guess if, I'll do it if nobody else will. If I have to do it, I guess I will. That attitude will never change the world. And I want to ask you, friends, do you have that attitude? That attitude of, do I have to? I want you to try something different today. Instead of saying, do I have to do it? I want you to change your heart and say, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity. You may be saying, Alan, I really don't feel that way. Well, You keep telling yourself that, Lord, thank you for that opportunity until it begins to change your attitude. You know that old saying, you know, fake it till you make it? You keep telling yourself, Lord, thank you for this opportunity. And eventually it's going to change your mindset. Peter also encourages us here to choose giving over getting. Verse 2, he says, don't be greedy for money, but eager to serve. Do you know what's holding the church back today? And I'm not talking about just Oakwood, okay? What's, what's holding the church back is people are looking for what the church can offer them, not what they have to offer the church. We don't have people come in and say, you know, we're really interested in joining your church because we've got this skill set and we've got these abilities and we think we can help you out in this way. No, they want to know, what's this church have to offer me? What's it have to offer for my kids, my family? What's it going to benefit me personally? Not, how can I best serve this church? We believe that money equals influence, and having money isn't a problem, but it's that desire for more because we want to be served rather than do the serving. Some of my friends, uh, in fact, they're here in church today. They just recently acquired some monkeys. And I'm, I'm talking real, real monkeys and built the cages and everything, just like the monkeys you'd see in a zoo. And, and my thought was, and I asked, I, what if these monkeys, if you had somebody would leave the gate open and they would get out, can you, can you catch them back? Well, we don't know yet, okay? But do you know how they catch monkeys in Africa? The Zulus have been catching monkeys for years. Now, they say that the African ringtail monkey is the hardest little monkey to catch, but they use his greed to catch him. You see, and it's a very simple little trap that they use. Not a cage, not some kind of wire trap, but a melon, 
attached to a vine, then they cut a little hole in it, just big enough for him to squeeze his little hand in because he loves the seeds that are in, inside of that melon. And once he gets his hand in there, he grabs a big handful of those seeds, and then he can't get his hand back out. And he's trapped. And he thrashes around, and he screeches, and he fights that melon and that vine for hours. He won't let go of the seeds. And so they use his greed to capture him. And then they just simply sneak up behind him and grab him. We may look like we're making an impact in this world when we have a lot of money in the bank, but Peter says instead of focusing on getting, be eager to serve. He also says to choose being an example over being in control. Some people like to order people around. And I want to tell you, you don't make a lasting impact by ordering people around. You make a lasting impact by showing people how to do it. The people that I've enjoyed working for the most have been the people that will serve alongside and will do what they're asking you to do. Not ask you to do something that they're not willing to do themselves, but asking you to do something to serve alongside of them. Let me show you how to do this. So the measure of my influence isn't how many people are underneath me in some organizational flow chart. Okay, that just tells you how many people are under your authority. But if you want to see about somebody's influence, you look behind and see how many people are following. That tells you the scope of their influence. Suppose you, the company you work for, the boss had a, had a meeting, called everybody together because you'd been going through just a real tough, tough patch. And he said... Listen, everybody's going to have to take a cut. Everybody's going to have to take a cut here because we're just financially strapped right now and everybody's just going to have to sacrifice equally, okay? So he, he gets everybody all motivated and, and upbeat. He says, hey, we're, we're going to get through this, but we're going to have to, to tighten our belts for a little while. We're going to have to really struggle, but we're going to pull together. And I want to encourage you by giving you my own personal cell phone number. I mean, it was such a powerful speech that people are crying and, and, and cheering. And it, I want to give you my own personal cell phone number so that if you have a problem, day or night, you can call me anytime because I'm going to be here for you. But not in the next 20 days because I'm going to be on my vacation to the Bahamas. Now, what are people going to remember the most about that meeting? What he said, his words, or his actions. If you want to make a mark on this world, you have got to be a great servant. I think one of the worst things that I hear people say is, well, that's not my job description. Second lesson I want us to learn from this passage of Scripture is to stay humble. James chapter 4, verse 6, God gives special blessings to those who are humble, but He sets Himself against those who are proud. Here in verse 6, Peter says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that He may lift you up. You see, when we're humble, we're saying, God, I'm dependent on You. I need You in my life. And the Bible says if we humble ourselves like that, He's going to lift us up. He will exalt us. 
But we're usually only humble when we're desperate. When we've done something wrong. Or we're in desperate need of help. We've tried everything else. We're out of options. You know how many people I've heard say this before? Well, you know, nothing else we can do except pray. Really? Yep, that's it. That's all we, that's our only option left. Like, you know, this probably is not going to work, but what's it going to hurt? Instead of that being the first option. When we're dependent on God, we humble ourselves before Him. Jesus taught His disciples this virtue in Matthew 23, 12. But those who think themselves great shall be disappointed and humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, Jesus reminds us that there's a real connection between our desire to be great and our need to be humble. And Jesus not only talked about being humble, but He was our greatest example. He washed feet. And then in Philippians 2, verse 8, Jesus humbled Himself even further, going so far as to actually die a criminal's death on the cross. You see, being a criminal and dying that way, that was humiliating. Part of the the punishment for dying on a cross was the public humiliation that you faced while everyone watched you. Jesus washed feet. He served others. He was willing to touch those that nobody else would touch. And finally, he went to a cross and died a criminal's death, something that he didn't deserve, but he stayed on that cross. So if you have this attitude, well, I'm better than that, you know, doing that is well below me, I want you to think back about Jesus, washing feet, dying a death on the cross, touching lepers, that was below Jesus, wasn't it? But he did it to show us what being a servant was all about, what being humble was all about. Third thing I want us to see here is that we need to stop worrying. We need to stop worrying. Sometimes I tend to be a worrier. Not all the time, but sometimes. Are there any other worriers here? Let me just see your hand and don't be bashful, okay? There's a few of us out there that tend to worry. And do you know what I found out? That the things I worry about normally never happen. But I worry about them anyway. But worriers never have much of an impact in this world. And do you know why? Because we're so busy fighting imaginary dragons that we don't have time to fight the real enemies. And our worries... Take the focus off of yourself, and as long as you're focused on, your, on somebody else, as long as we're focused on ourselves, we can't do the other things that we've talked about today to make an impact in this world. Because I'm so focused on myself, worrying, what if, what if, what if? Peter says for us to do something with our worry. In verse 7, he said, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Okay, now I want you to imagine with me fishing, okay? Because when we fish, we cast, okay? Now one of the things that I've been trying to get the little granddaughters to understand is when you go fishing and you cast out there, you need to to leave it out there. But they think they've got to reel it right back in. And so it's, it's a process of casting it and they reel it. I cast it, they reel it. That's the same way sometimes I do with my worry. I'm real good at giving my worries to God. 
But if something doesn't happen immediately, you know, I don't get that bite immediately, I'm going to reel it back in. God's not doing enough quick enough, so I'm going to reel it back in. So it's this process of constantly casting and bringing it back in, bringing it back in, throwing it out, giving it to God, taking it back because I want immediate answers. We have to learn to cast our anxiety to God. Give our worries to God and leave them there. Let Him worry about them. Our job isn't to to fix these worries. That's His job. He said to give them to me. I'm going to take care of them. I want to ask you, what are you worried about right now? Are you worried about retirement? Are you worried about, uh, as President Trump says, a rocket boy over in North Korea? Are you worried about your children, your grandchildren? Are you worried about the stock market? Maybe it's retirement. Last week at our small group that meets in our house, I asked that question, what are you worried about the most when it comes to your future? Most everybody says, well, I'm, I'm worried about either my kids or my grandkids and what this world is going to be like for them. How much control do we have over the future? Has God given us the keys to the universe yet to say, okay, you're in control of the future? Or are we worrying about something that we literally have no control over? Worry is letting the problem work on you. Prayer is letting God work on the problem. So how would you rather spend your time, worrying or praying? And I know some people say, I don't have time to pray. I'm too busy worrying. Oh, you don't have time not to pray, okay? This week is Thanksgiving, and if you really want to make a difference, then more than one day a year, when you're thankful and grateful, you've got to take Peter's advice, and you've got to start serving. You've got to stay humble, and you've got to stop worrying, and then you will have lived a significant life. And I hope you want to live a life that matters not just here and now, but I want you to keep your mind and your eyes focused on eternity because that's what matters. And to do that, we have to live with an eternal perspective. I want to close this morning by telling you the story of of two people, two different contrasting people who both in their own way lived a life completely different, but affected and impacted others. The first is Dan Wilson. If you've been here at Oakwood at least two years or longer, you know that July the 2nd, 2015, Dan Wilson, our executive and our senior's adult pastor, passed away from a heart attack. He was mowing the yard. It was hot that day. He came in and had a massive heart attack and went to be with the Lord. But you look at the life that Dan Wilson lived, he impacted many of us here in this room. You look at the the churches, not just here in Oklahoma, but around the United States, of young men that had served with, under Dan, that had been in his church, are now serving churches somewhere else and continue to impact this world. 
We have a couple of our guys here on this staff, Eric and Corey, that both grew up here with Dan as one of their pastors. Had a tremendous influence. And Pastor Eric, his first job was in the ministry was working with Dan over in Sandusky in, in Tulsa. Dan had a tremendous example of servanthood. You would have never found somebody harder working than Dan Wilson. Dan went out of his way to serve others. He never said, well, that's below me. He said, how can I help? And he modeled servanthood for us. And his legacy continues to live on, not just because we have a, a fund here that says the Dan Wilson Legacy Fund, which we do have, because see, he had a whole list of things that he wanted to see this church accomplish, big projects, big dreams. And so that's continuing to live on because we have that fund, Dan Wilson Legacy Fund, that will fund some of those big projects. But his greatest legacy isn't in a fund, his greatest legacy is in the people that he invested in. And I don't think we're going to know the full scope of, of Dan's legacy and his influence till we get to heaven and we meet this person and like, well, I'm here because of Dan. Dan brought me to the Lord. Dan discipled me. Dan taught me this. I served under Dan. On and on and on. He lived a significant life. And we were all impacted by him and we continue to be impacted this church because of his legacy. The other person I want to tell you about is, by her own admission, the most hated woman ever to have lived in the United States. This lady disappeared, and for five years they searched for her. And when they finally found her, they found her remains in a West Texas ranch. Her dismembered body, along with two of her, of her adult children, had been dismembered and thrown in canisters to rot out in the desert. Investigators said it was just a grisly scene and we'll think, what could have happened? This woman had disappeared five years earlier, but she was very instrumental. In fact, she was the one responsible for taking prayer out of school. And making sure that Bibles can't be read or even handed out in school. Her name was Madeline Murray O'Hara. A devout atheist. Somebody that grew up initially going to church, but then she decided there is no God. I don't believe that God exists. So she spent the rest of her life leaving a legacy that God's not here. People wondered what happened to her because there was some gold coins that were missing and somebody thought that she may have been kidnapped or held for ransom, abducted. Others thought, well, she just because of her help drifted off so Christians couldn't find her and pray for her, but she was murdered and killed. And the moment she took her last breath on this earth, she found out there was a God. And she had lived her life in vain. And what she thought was a significant life wasn't significant at all. Oh yeah, there'll be some people around her 
that she influenced and that she brought down with her, but it's not a place that there's going to be any reunion going on. And in contrast that with Dan, he lived a significant life and there will be great celebration in heaven because of his life and his legacy. I want to ask you today, what kind of a legacy are you going to live behind? Are you going to live a significant life? It's not about the job you have. It's not about your sporting accomplishments. It's not about any awards or anything like that that you have. It's going to be about what difference did you make? Did you live a significant life? And it's my hope and prayer today that you choose to live a significant life. Because eternity is counting on you.